Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Peter Bergen, the author of The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden. He's written several books on terrorism, the American response to terrorism, and indeed on Osama bin Laden himself, who he met and interviewed in 1997. He's also the director of the International Security Program at New America. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Bergen. Thank you for having me on. Before we start the interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. You describe in this book, Peter, if I may, what it was like in 1997 to be blindfolded, driven through the mountains of Afghanistan, and brought into a room where Osama bin Laden was waiting to be interviewed. It was the first time, you write, that he was going to target a Western audience with his message that America must leave Saudi Arabia and the Holy Land. Now that you say he's one of the few people who it can be truly said changed world history, what stands out from being face-to-face with him that didn't seem important at the time, but does now with the hindsight of 9-11? Well, that is a very good question. You know, a kind of minor reply to that is, you know, he mentioned something in that interview, which I had no idea what he was talking about. He said, you know, we... His big theme in the interview was um, America is a paper tiger, we're as weak as the former Soviet Union. Um, And this, of course, was his theory of the case on 9-11. But he mentioned in passing Aden, and I never understood what the hell he was talking about. And Aden, of course, is where the USS Cole uh, was blown up three years in the future. But what he was referring to, and I only only realized what he was referring to years later was Al-Qaeda's first attempt to attack American targets actually took place in December of 1992. And people associated with Al-Qaeda tried to blow up American servicemen who were billeted in hotels in Aden on their way to Somalia for Operation Restore Hope, which was the George W. Bush administration's humanitarian mission to feed starving of Somalis. The bombs blew up, did not kill any U.S. servicemen, did kill a tourist and I think a hotel worker, but you know they got absolutely no. I mean, so for him, this and then then the U.S. Got, U.S. military stopped using Aden as a transit point to Somalia as a result of that attack. Anyway, I just you know you asked me like what what did I learn later about this interview? That was a big one, which is that for Bin Laden, you know, the U.S. retreat from Aden, which didn't register like there were simply no news stories about. If you look on Nexus, you know the you can find, you know, a wire story or two about the attack on these hotels, but it like it didn't register at all in the United States. Or, um, but but for him, it was evidence of the weakness of the United States, which was his. And so, you know, going back to that interview, his main view was the United States was weak. We now know for a fact that he only spent two weeks in the United States. It, you know, you can't really claim great expertise on the United States hmm. after a two or three week trip. Um, and in a way, he not in a way, I mean, I think that he, he really didn't understand Americans or the United States because he somehow thought that he'd attack us on 9-11 and somehow we would fold our tents and leave the Middle East, which didn't happen. 
Yeah, and he kind of used that attack as uh, the, the one you mentioned in 1991 as proof that the U.S. would fold. And I did read that passage in your, in your book, and I was wondering if you'd bring that up. Uh, very interesting. Um, since the book is called The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, where was he on his arc? Um, I would assume you would consider that part of the rise that he felt he needed to allow this interview with you in 1997. Well, I think they were looking to do an interview with a major American or I mean, they told me that they were interested in doing a TV interview, CNN, 60 Minutes or the BBC is I think what, um, you know, and their knowledge of the American of the media in general was, uh, you know, they didn't really understand, you know, they were like, are you agents of the CIA? Um, will you give this guy a fair shake? They asked some pretty basic questions because of course they came out of authoritarian states uh, where there isn't a free press. Um, and, you know, and they were also very trepidatious about the whole thing. Um, but yeah, they wanted, they had declared war on the United States in Al-Quds Al-Arabi, which is, was then one of the few independent Arabic uh, language news outlets not controlled by the Saudis. Um, and, you know, it just, no one really paid any attention. No one really paid attention really to our CNN interview, to be honest. I mean, you know, we were, he, as far as the world was concerned, and even as we didn't understand that they'd already tried to attack American troops in Somalia and Aden. Um, so it, at the time, it seemed like he was declaring war on the United States, but it was sort of how real was this call to arms wasn't clear. Um, and so the CNN interview didn't get much attention, really, because it didn't appear that he'd done anything as yet. Yeah, it's like... Who, who's ever going to sit there and think to themselves that just four years later, something so crazy would happen? Um, take us back to the beginning. The Bin Ladens are a large family. They've got many tentacles because of the practice of polygamy among some of its members. Um, and there are rags to riches story that you describe in this book. It took his father from Yemen to Saudi Arabia. How did yeah. his dad become connected with the royals and then with the money that the family made? There was good timing, you know, the Bin Laden's dad, father, um, who had started 54 other, uh, you know, half siblings, in addition to Bin Laden himself, um, left Hadramaut, which I visited uh, before 9-11. Hadramaut is an astonishingly beautiful place, uh, mired in the Middle Ages still today. So you can imagine what it was like in 1930 when Bin Laden's father left. Mm -hmm. Basically, if you're a, a male in Hadramaut in Yemen, you had, you know, very few options. Most, uh, most of the men would uh, go to Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, go to Egypt, you know, often, you know, immigrate permanently or go there for 20 years because no work. So Mohammed left for, for what became the, the, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia in 1932. So he had, he had very good timing and he was, uh, the Hadramis are, Builders of genius. I don't know if you've ever seen these pictures, Evan, but the, you know, the the, the Hadramaut medieval fortresses rise up 15, 15 stories. So they're, you know, they're kind of, um, uh, the, it, it's a place where there's a lot of very good builders. And Mohammed bin Laden was one of those builders. He was a bricklayer. And he came and he, you know, first, first job was as a porter in the holy city of, uh, uh, in Jeddah for pilgrims going to Mecca. And somehow, you know, he set up his own business and very soon he was attending 
the king's weekly majlis, which is basically was open to the public and you would come and, you know, petition the king or air your grievances and the king would solve them. And he was a pretty assiduous attender to these. And over time, you know, he first of all got the contract to rebuild Mecca and Medina, uh, which was not only very lucrative, but it was also very prestigious because these are the two holiest sites in Islam. He then built a, a road that some British contractor in 1958 had failed to build, uh, connecting, um, I think, Jeddah and Mecca. Uh, then he built the road to Taif, which made him a sort of national hero. Um, and then he was killed in a plane crash in 1967. Interestingly, the plane was um, piloted by an American pilot. Yeah, I made a something. note on that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and his older brother died in a plane crash in the United States in, uh, a decade later, two decades later. Uh, but anyway, so the, the plane, this I think is obviously, I, I try not to get into too much armchair psychologizing in the book. And I that was to, my next question I was going to ask you to do that, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, because I, what I wanted to do was let the reader, he or she, sort of make their own conclusions without me just trying to over, overly, um, you know, kind of like signal all the conclusions that I'm, the because, you know, at the end of the day, you still really don't know exactly why somebody does what they do. Um, but clearly the death of his father, according to Bin Laden himself, had a big impact on him. He's in this family diary that was recovered in a Abbottabad compound was one of the key documents I used for the book. He talks about how the death of his father turned him to the study of the Quran. Now, his father died when he was 10. So the age 10, he suddenly becomes more religious. By the time he's a teenager, you know, he's seen, he memorized much of the Quran or, or all of the Quran. He's, uh, you know, Which is really, an unbelievable feat, I mean, by the way. It's a huge feat. But, you know, I have a, a friend, Greg Barker, who made a brilliant film uh, about um, these kids that learn the entire Quran. And there's a, there's, I think there's a contest in Cairo maybe every year, and they come from around the Muslim world. And these kids are, are, are age 10. You know, so by the time you're telling you, yeah, but it's a huge feat of memory. It's 6,000 verses. Um, and so it's not inconceivable that Bin Laden, age 11 or 12, would have, you know, who was essentially living by him. He, he was, you know, he was an only child of this union um, and kind of a solitary guy at this time. And anyway, so he's, he learns the Quran probably, you know, completely. Um, and then he becomes sort of a religious zealot. Um, as a teenager and, you know, chanting religious songs about Palestine with his buddies and, you know, chant fasting twice a week and praying in the middle of the night an extra set of prayers. And, you know, he's, 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 he's unusual even by the standards of conservative Saudi society, this religiosity he has. I, I, I guess I, I guess I hesitate now to ask you the uh, armchair psychology question, but I'm going to ask yeah. it. Um, I, I always thought even before I read your book, that it was interesting that his family was in the business of building things, that yeah. he was in the business of destroying things. You know, that contrast to me is is interesting. And in your book, you say he had only a few actual discussions with his dad. He eventually leaves Osama bin Laden's mother. Um, can we psychoanalyze those two facts at all and say this was a man who subconsciously both hated his dad and wanted to symbolically symbolically destroy things that his dad has built had built well I, I i don't know and i yeah. but i it is a fact that his parents divorced when he was two clearly that would have an impact on each any child 
as you said, you know, he only had five meetings with his dad, it appears, and only one was a substantive one-on-one meeting. So he had a very distant relationship with his father, but took it badly when, he, when his father was killed in this plane crash. So that all has to have an impact on you. But one of the themes of the book, I think, is that none of this was inevitable. And, you know, this wasn't, this was not a case of like somebody sitting down at a computer and reading ISIS propaganda and then within six months trying to carry out a terrorist attack. It, this was a process of radicalization that took decades. And, you know, the shy religious teenager who sort of founded Al Qaeda age 31, you know, there were some intervening steps along the way. And even when Al-Qaeda was founded, it wasn't necessarily a group that was dedicated to, you know, killing American civilians. That, that also took uh, at least two or three years uh, to kind of formalize. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I, all we can say is the death of a parent, the divorce of your parents, all that has an impact. But did it mean that, does it take you to the founding of Al-Qaeda? You know, I don't think so. And the interesting thing is, this is actually one of those almost perfect sociological uh, kind of experiments because you have 54 siblings who essentially had the same, you know, some their life experiences were not, each of them were different in the sense they had different mothers and some of the mothers were close to the father and may have been seen as more part of the family. But the point is, is, you know, when you've got 54 siblings and none of them go down your path, you know, it's an interesting controlled experiment about like the nature versus nurture kind of uh, question. I guess it's fair to call him a rotten apple in the group of the family. Well, you know, I mean, rotten apple again, I mean, I, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I, maybe I, that's, I, yeah. Well, look, I mean, look, the other thing is, look, if, if you'd encountered Hitler in the, in a beer hall in Munich in the early 20s, he would have just seemed like a deranged World War I veteran spouting a bunch of bullshit. Uh, and of no consequence, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it is the kind of interplay between the person and the historical circumstances that I do believe in, the, you know, since we're talking about history, I do believe in the great man theory of history when it comes to Hitler, Napoleon, Osama bin Laden. Now, obviously, bin Laden didn't change Hitler, didn't change the, the, the history of the world like Napoleon did or, or Hitler did, but he did change the course of foreign policy in the United States for two decades. And as a result of which, he reshaped inadvertently the Middle East in ways that he certainly didn't expect. And also we had no idea it was gonna happen. Um, so, you know, I think he, he, that's one of the reasons I wrote another book really focusing on him uh, was this, is the fact that he did, there were all these unexpected consequences of, of the choices he made that he was unaware of at the time he made them. Let's say a word about his mother too. Uh, you emphasize yeah. this in the book and I thought it was interesting. Um, he called his mother a concubine and you actually yeah. rewrote the word, the next sentence to emphasize what the word concubine means. Yeah. What a stark thing that is. So what, what place does she hold when we look back and we see that, he's willing to treat other women in much the same way that he, as the name he derisively called her. Well, I mean, I don't know if he was being derisive about her. I think he was being factual. Um, yeah. And also like he did not admire the way his father had treated not only his own mother, but his other wives. I mean, he, he had long discussions with his best friend at university and his brother-in-law about the correct way 
to sort of have four wives and the correct way was not to you know divorce number three and four on a routine basis as his dad did which so dad had at least 20 wives so in his mind he was treating his wives you know in the right quranically sanctioned way and his father had not and i'm i'm sure that was as a result of his father essentially treating his wife his mother as a concubine you know they got they were married for two years they had osama bin laden and he moved straight on and she was only she was a teenager when bin laden's dad married um married uh bin laden's mother you know he was already a 50 year old man and she was you know variously you know 15 or 16 so it was not you know <laughs> uh the other interesting thing about the you know one i followed bin laden's story for a long time and the last time i wrote a book about about it was um about him in any detail was manhunt which was the story of the hunt for bin laden but since then, so many things have come out that are useful to know, not least that we now have confirmation of something that I always thought was true, which is Bin Laden's mother was an Alawite. Now, we'd always thought that was the case because she comes from Latakia, which is an Alawite city in Syria. But Martin Chulov of The Guardian did a really interesting interview with her in 2018, in which she said, yes, I'm an Alawite, which is, you know, if you think about Alawites, it's not clear what they believe. Um, it's a heretical form of Shiism, even if you're a sort of mainstream Shia, because they celebrate Islamic and Christian holidays. What they precisely believe is sort of a secret, it's not really clear. Um, and so it's a minority within a minority. So think about it as an, if you're an Alawite in the conservative Saudi Arabia, Wahhabi, you know, this is a very heretic, Shiism is heretical for these guys. So Alawism is even, so Again, I can't armchair, armchair psychologize this entirely, but Bin Laden's mother is an Alawite, which made him a sort of outsider, you know, sort of from a religious perspective. And then, of course, his family's from Yemen, which makes him an outsider from a Saudi perspective, because you're never really going to be the heart, the Nejdis and the, who make up the Saudi royal family, you're always going to be an outsider from Yemen. So he was sort of, and then he was sort of an outsider in his own family, because his mother was only briefly married to his father. She was clearly one of the less significant wives. So he, he had this sort of triple outsiderness that you see, you know, Stalin was from Georgia, Hitler's from Austria. Um, again, you don't want to compare these people. <laughs> yeah. But it is interesting that, you know, he became more, more Catholic than the Pope in, in a sense. Uh, and as, many presidents viewed themselves as outsiders growing up too. Yeah. Yeah, well, Donald Trump has seen, saw himself as an outsider, even though he's the son of a, you know, he, 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 he you know, he, in, in many ways, he's very much part of the elite. So, but this outsiderishness might explain why uh, Bin Laden, um, you know, kind of became so religiously devout. Um, and, uh, mm. but, you know, but again, I can't, you can't separate out any of these factors as being the one determinative factor. There's a name that comes up um, often in the books on terrorism and on the founding of Al-Qaeda and on um, Islamic fundamentalism um, that turns violent, jihadis. Um, the name is Abdullah Azam, and he effectively became Osama bin Laden's mentor in jihad. Yeah. Um, his name is largely forgotten um, to most Americans, if not to uh, most people yeah. around the world. Um, who 
is Abdullah Abzam and explain how they meet and how critical this became in Osama bin Laden's formation as a jihadi? Well, I think, you know, again, not to be an armchair psychologist, it's easier to do it uh, when you're talking about the book than writing about the book. But, you know, bin Laden's father disappears when he's 10, gets killed, dies in his plane crash. And Abdullah Razam would have been a, uh, a quite effective father figure for bin Laden, who moved to Pakistan when he was in his early 20s to support the Afghan jihad against the Soviets. And Abdullah Razam was a lot of things that bin Laden wasn't. He was a brilliant public speaker. He was a poet. He was uh, fighting on the front lines. He'd been involved in um, fighting the Israelis during the 1967 war. He's a Palestinian uh, from Janine who uh, went to Jordan and joined a kind of guerrilla group. And, you know, he, he's kind of the man of action and the man of letters. He wrote, you know, many, many books. He was a very charismatic guy. He, um, and he you know, created the first global jihadist movement really uh, through the force of his own writing and force of personality, recruiting people with his books, with his, with his articles, with his fatwas. He's a true religious scholar. He uh, is a graduate of Al-Azhar University, which is the kind of Vatican of Sunni thought. Um, and so for Bin Laden, Bin Laden was sort of blown away by his arm in the early days and was basically kind of his acolyte and very quiet in his presence. And, um, there's, a, there's a wonderful, relatively new book by Thomas Heckhammer, who's a Norwegian scholar, one of the leading scholars of Islam, Islamism in the world, uh, which is a full-scale biography of Azam for anybody who might be interested. But yeah, Azam had a big impact on, on bin Laden and, and the whole global jihadi movement. But what he was, Azam eventually was assassinated by unknown assailants, and I think that there were people in bin Laden's circle, but not bin Laden himself. And he was assassinated, I think, although it's never been, the crime has never been solved. Uh, in, he was assassinated in 1989 in Peshawar in Pakistan. But I think he was assassinated by people who basically objected to the fact that Azam wasn't militant enough, didn't want to overthrow the existing authoritarian regimes in the Middle East. Azam's view of jihad was a more narrow view, which is it's about pushing non-Muslim uh, invaders out of Muslim lands, whether that's Palestine, whether that's Afghanistan. Uh, you know, he didn't or, you know, places like Chechnya, where the Russians, you know, were, were, you know he, he was killed by the time the Russians went in. But that, that's a kind of traditional concept of jihad for, these, for the jihadists. The people around bin Laden wanted to overthrow the Egyptian government. And then bin Laden himself went even a step further, which was his analysis was, you know, let's, let's take on the United States, because without the United States, these, these authoritarian governments wouldn't be able to survive. Uh, as you describe in the book, um, the story of Osama bin Laden's time in Afghanistan uh, during the war with the Soviets is critical in how uh, he develops as a voice and as a leader of men. He learns strategy. He learns how to cultivate the idea of himself as a larger-than-life figure. And he learns propaganda. They even open up a magazine while he's there. So explain... Um, the impact of his time in Afghanistan in, in more detail and, and just what we need to know about how we can kind of glean his um, roots as a leader there. Yeah, well, that's a, a very good, I mean, this is, uh, I think, a huge inflection point and, it's, it, uh, and it goes on for years and years and years because he, he's, he goes to, within two weeks of the Soviet invasion, which was over Christmas, 1979, he's in Pakistan, he's raising money, he's giving money to the jihadi Afghan 
jihad groups or people who support them. He does that for four years. He goes into Afghanistan for the first time in 84. It's a very transformational experience. He hadn't gone in before because his friends and family and maybe even himself, but you know, he, this was a very dangerous war. The Soviets had total air superiority, superiority until 1986. Uh, they killed at least a million Afghans. You know, the population of Afghanistan at the time was uh, you know, maybe 18 million or something. They killed at least a million Afghans. They made six millions of them uh, leave their homes. Many of them ended up as refugees in Pakistan or Iran. They're, you know, they're now, those, those families are still in Iran and Pakistan in some cases. So, you know, bin Laden went in um, and was you know, tremendously excited about what he saw. And, uh, and then he started recruiting people to come to fight inside Afghanistan. He set up his own base at a place called Jaji in eastern Afghanistan. The base was called Al-Qaeda, the base in Arabic. And from Al-Qaeda, the base against the Soviets became this organization. It was sort of a nickname for the base. And then the base, like a lot of nicknames, it became the name uh, of the organization. Um, and, you know, bin Laden fought the Soviets himself quite bravely. He had no military uh, expertise and he, you know, tended to make military mistakes. So he would but for, for the people like bin Laden and people around him, they didn't care about making military mistakes. They were seeking death. And usually, you know, death seeking is not a smart approach to military strategy, right? Intentional death seeking. Uh, but bin Laden wanted, you know, in, the, in the 21 year old, 20 year old university students he was recruiting from Saudi cities like Medina, they, they were seeking death and they hoped to be martyrs. Um, but bin Laden certainly became a leader of men in this period began to have faith in his own leadership abilities. You mentioned Jihad magazine, the propaganda arm. That starts up. Uh, bin Laden funds it. Bin Laden play, you know, appears in its pages, although not a huge amount compared to Abdullah Razam, who we've just discussed. Um, and then Jamal Khashoggi, a journalist who was killed by Saudi officials in the Istanbul consulate in 2018. Yeah, it was hard to read his name in your book. It comes up a few times, and uh, yeah. I felt sad reading it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it was very sad. I, I didn't know Jamal well, but I certainly admired him and got to know him in the course of the reporting on bin Laden and then got to know him a bit better, uh, just reporting on the Saudis. And, you know, very, very decent, um, thoughtful, serious person. And so Jamal, like bin Laden, bin Laden you know, Jamal Khashoggi's uncle was Adnan Khashoggi, who was a a multi-billionaire and so Khashoggi and bin Laden came from the same kind of social milieu the kind of upper middle class upper class Saudis highly educated they both were part of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, Jamal you know believed in the fight against the, the, the Soviet uh, you know he, he clearly believed in it as a cause and he went and he did a, a major piece about bin Laden which came out in 1988 and that really put bin Laden on the map it was a piece that appeared in Arab News, which is the main English language newspaper in Saudi, and also in Al Shaka Al Ausat, which is a big Saudi newspaper. And, you know, it was a very, I mean, uh, the piece was completely factually accurate. It was, I think, somewhat flattering to bin Laden and the people who were around him. It, it, you know, no members of the Saudi royal family, of which there is a huge number, were fighting the Soviets personally. And of course, this was a a war in which the United States was also aligned in, with the Afghans against the Soviets. So that, I think, put bin Laden on the map, and he suddenly became something of a war hero, uh, which made him a desirable 
uh, figure to come and speak at mosques or at social gatherings. He began to become more of a public speaker. Uh, suddenly, he was also something of a catch on the marriage market because um, even though he was already married, uh, his, the two wives that would play an important role going forward uh, married him in part because he was a jihadi war hero. Um, both of them had PhDs. Uh, one, in, one was a child psychiatrist. The other one had a PhD in Quranic gra grammar. And they knew, you know, Bin Laden had married when he was 17. His wife was 15. They had 11 kids together. His first wife, a Syrian cousin. Uh, but, you know, he, he sort of became a national figure as a result of his, you know, kind of heroics on the, on the, on the Afghan war, war front. Although it is, worth, it is worth pointing out that, you know, the, the, Bin Laden and his men had no effect on the war. They were very small in number. The Afghans had you know, a minimum of 175,000 men on the battlefield at any time, up to 250,000. Afghans don't really need much help from about fighting, particularly from a bunch of you know, rich Saudis who, you know, don't have, I mean, you know, they just, it, it, it was, Bin Laden in his own mind thought he had helped defeat the Soviets. You know, he, that was delusional thinking. Inflated, yeah. 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 Um. I don't want to gloss over too much of the 1990s because there's this kind of rising tide of violence that we see from Al Qaeda. There are a number of attacks. Um, some of the we've heard of, some of them, honestly, we, we may have forgotten, but of course, um, Nairobi and a couple of embassy bombings, and then it leads up to the coal bombing in 2000. Um, I, I guess the way I want to just have you cover that time period is what is the thesis that he's building about the United States and how did that thesis fit into this religious dream that he had of a Muslim world? Well, I think you know, Bin Laden was never very clear about the, his preferred end state. Um, you know, and I, I'm, you know, he never talked in great detail about it, but I'm, I'm presuming it would be Taliban-style theocracies from Indonesia to Morocco is basically what it looked like. And you know, he, he, he thought that the United States was standing in the way of this dream because of its support for regimes like the Saudis and the Egyptians. And his theory of the case was you apply enough military pressure to the United States, they pull out of the Middle East. You know, he was very influenced by the 1983 Marine barracks attack by Hezbollah, which resulted in the Reagan administration yanking troops out of, the middle, out of Lebanon. He was very influenced by the Somalia Black Hawk Down incident where the Clinton administration pulled out troops after 18 American servicemen were killed in the Black Hawk Down incident. And that was the model. The model was, you know, attack them, attack the United American targets in Africa and the Middle East, eventually in the United States, and the United States would change its foreign policy. That model, of course, made no sense at all uh, and backfired completely because in the end, you know, Bin Laden achieved precisely the opposite of what he was trying to do was United States became more involved in the Middle East and more tightly aligned with a lot of the regimes he didn't like uh, as a result of 9-11. Um, and so it, it backfired. And there was this idea that the Bush administration pushed, which was that they did this because they hate freedom. But there were very specific policy ends that they were trying to achieve. This was not, at least in Al-Qaeda's thinking, an attack on freedom itself. They had specific goals. Yeah, I mean, Bin Laden himself responded to that line. In, in, I think three or four, three years after 9-11, he said, look, if it was about freedom, why didn't we attack Sweden? 
which was an interesting choice of country because we know that at least 23 of his siblings went on vacation to Sweden in 1971. And he himself may have been part of that. There's some debate about it. The point is, it's like he didn't select Sweden out of nowhere. Of course, Sweden is a very liberal democracy. Uh, but he, 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 you know, he was, he's kind of joking about it. Like he, if it was really about freedom, why didn't we attack Sweden? So his, his critique of the United States, which he, you know, told us in 97, told John Miller of ABC News in 98, and, and then wrote hundreds of thousands of words about it. And, you know, it was very, very, very consistent, which is he was, it's about American foreign policy in the Middle East, principally its support for the Saudis, secondarily its support for, for Israel, and, you know, much further down the list, you know, issues like Egypt. And, but the, the key point was American support for the Saudi royal family. Um, I don't know that we need to go into great detail of, of 9-11. Um, it's very painful, and we've had the 20-year anniversary this year. Um, but I guess I would just ask you to cover 9-11 um, by just explaining how it um, was conceived and how closely to the conception the reality wound up being. In other words, was what we saw happen that day planned in a cave by Osama bin Laden, or was it you know, was some of it kind of farmed out and this is what they wound up with. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of long prehistory here, but um, yeah, it, it first percolated as sort of a completely notional idea in the Philippines in 1995, when uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the operational commander and his, and his nephew, Ramza Youssef, who bombed the Trade Center at the first time in February of 93, and a guy called Murad was sort of just like, knocking around ideas, one of which was to small, fly, fly a small plane into the CIA headquarters. And then it developed from that into, you know, maybe also bringing down American airliners with bombs in the Middle East, in Asia, a dozen of them. That became the sort of kernel of the 9-11 plot, which KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, talked to bin Laden about in 96. Bin Laden himself made a number of adjustments to the plot, cut out the Asia part, he said it was too complicated, um, and, and really focused on and chose the targets. He, he kept this all very close hold. The only people who really knew about the plot is Mohammed Atef, who was the number two in Al-Qaeda at the time, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the operational commander, bin Laden, later in the game, the lead hijackers like Mohammed Atta. Even the, most of the hijackers themselves had no idea what the targets were, so it was very compartmented. One of the kind of interesting takeaways about the book, at least for me, uh, having spent you know two and a half decades working on the subject, there were, there's been a lot of inflation of the role of Zawahiri in all this, who's the Egyptian leader of Al Qaeda today, a very bright guy, a surgeon from an upper class Egyptian family. After 9/11, there was a lot of narrative that he was the brains of Al Qaeda. Actually, that's completely untrue. Uh, Bin Laden really ran the show. Uh, Zawahiri was a very marginal player in, in Al Qaeda before 9/11. He spent, a lot of people sort of have forgotten this fact, but he was actually jailed for a period of several months in the run-up to 9-11 in Dagestan. He was a penniless, uh, he had a tiny organization, almost no followers. He's not a charismatic guy. People don't particularly like him. And so for bin Laden, Zawahiri was convenient window dressing because when bin Laden declared his global Islamic front, he needed people from other groups. Uh, and Zawahiri was a convenient Egyptian and so he shows up in pictures of the, of, of, of the organization when it first declared itself in 98. 
Um, but Zawahiri, and, and the big, big point here is that Zawahiri was focused on overthrowing the Egyptian regime. Bin Laden could have cared less about it. Some, an academic somewhere did a textual analysis of all Bin Laden's statements. And I think Egypt turned out to be number 36 on a list or where you know, number one was US, number two was Saudi Arabia. So on the hierarchy of Bin Laden's concerns, Zawahiri's concerns were zero. And Zawahiri didn't influence Bin Laden on his key strategic decision, which was attack the United States. If, if Al-Qaeda had kind of kept a narrow focus on trying to overthrow through a coup or through an assassination attempt, you know, an authoritarian Middle Eastern regime, it, the group might still be, you know, somewhat, you know, in, in a different place. I mean, it just, it chose the wrong enemy. Strategically, it was the wrong decision. The enemy reacted in ways that they, Bin Laden had no expectation was the reaction that was going to happen. And as a result of which Al-Qaeda was, you know, largely destroyed in the years after 9-11. Yeah, it was like his greatest success led to the to the to the downfall itself. Um, yeah, I remember in I guess it was two thousand two, probably. So I was already a year into college, but I went to Cooperstown, New York, with some high school friends to see the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, amazing tourist site, one of the most beautiful places you can visit in the United States. Um, and I remember we were sitting in this hotel room, and you know, I guess young kids kind of fantasize about stuff, and we said to ourselves what if Osama bin Laden is near us right now? What if this is where he's hiding? And to me, I tell that story because it shows the psychological hold that this figure suddenly had on those of us in the United States who were devastated and horrified by the attacks of 9-11. Did he enjoy playing that role of being the psychological sort of foil for the United States, even though he ends up failing to produce any significant future attacks? Yeah, I mean, I think he referred to it himself in his public statement. He, I think he said, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said at one point, you know, a few years after 9-11, all it takes is a couple of guys waving the flag of jihad and the United States sort of freaks out. So he, he certainly understood the power of psychological warfare. And he and, you know, they, so, yeah, I think he, he wanted to, yeah, he, the point of terrorism is to terrorize. And so he, and it's interesting what you were saying about the role that he play, played psychologically, because I think, uh, you know, I, over time that simply decayed. And when he was killed, really, I think, you know, he almost disappeared as a, as a figure. He, he, he didn't live on as some heroic martyrdom figure. Um, you know, he didn't die on a field of jihad. He died surrounded by his wives and kids. Do today's it, terrorists look up to him as a myth? Well, I think, I think, I, you know, I, it's an interesting question. You know, ISIS and Al-Qaeda were in a uh, kind of a dispute, I mean, fairly heated dispute, which I think if Bin Laden was alive, he might have been able to kind of keep it all together. Uh, but ISIS still regards him as sort of an important figure. And I think, you know, he's, he's yeah, but I, I think over time, he's just sort of receded and, you know, he didn't achieve the things he wanted, uh, but he, you know, he certainly, if you look at the history of jihad, he's the, he's the biggest figure, um, you know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi will, the, for, the leader of ISIS that President Trump uh, killed with a drone strike, um, will become a trivial pursuit question, I think, before Osama bin Laden becomes a trivial pursuit question. But there will come a time when Osama bin Laden will be a trivial pursuit question too. I'm not saying it's you know, anytime soon, but I, I end the book with a scene where 
Gina Bennett, who wrote the first warning about bin Laden, she's still at the CIA today. She wrote this warning back in 1993. But she, she's, when bin Laden, the day bin Laden's killed, a 26 year old CIA analyst, a female, just like herself, who, the, 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 the herself who wrote the first warning as, he, as a you know, mid 20s analyst, you know, said, This is a great day. And Gina Bennett says, Have you ever heard of the Badaf Meinhof gang? And the analyst says, No. Uh, and of course, the Bidov Meinhof gang had a huge profile in the 70s when they were killing German officials and businessmen and even Americans. Um, and Gina Bennett says, you know, the, the, the worst day for Al-Qaeda will be when two analysts at the counterterrorism center talk to each other and they, one of them doesn't really know who Osama bin Laden is. Now, obviously, that's going to be, there's going to be some time off, but you do feel like, a, a, one of the reasons I wrote the book, Evan, was I, I teach at Arizona State, and I realized that the students I was teaching were either not born on 9-11 or were very young kids, were babies. Yeah. And one of them asked to me, what's the difference between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban? And, you know, I'm, that's a very good question. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but I realized for them, for them, this event had moved into history, uh, yeah, even though it continues to have reverberations. I mean, for me, the Korean War is an historical event, uh, which doesn't really have many reverberations today. 9-11 is a historical event, which I think, you know, the aftershocks of which we're still feeling. But, but nonetheless, for them, it's not a, an event in memory as it is for me and I presume for you. Yeah. Yeah. I've done stories about people who are now even older than they were when I first did the stories, but their first memories were of 9-11. Um, right. and now I can probably do stories for my TV station, um, for people who were not even alive and who are learning about it in school for the first time. Um, I, I, I want to ask you about, you actually took a tour of the compound, um, yeah. in Pakistan. So what did you glean from that tour? Uh, this is the place of course, where he was killed in 2011 in the, uh, strike by the Navy SEALs. Um, what did you learn from taking that tour about how he lived on a day-to-day -day basis there? It was interesting in your introduction, you talk about how he was worried at the time that history was passing him by, but describe right. life in that compound. Well, so, yeah, the life, life, his life is very circumscribed and, and that was also of his family. I mean, he, he, he had a lot on his mind in his last several weeks of life. He, the bodyguards that were protecting him were, 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 were going to leave him which was a real conundrum because they did everything for him from, you know, getting groceries to moving uh, messages around. Um, and and uh, they, they were fed up with protecting the world's most wanted men. And they had, they were concerned about the dangers and, and the low pay that bin Laden was paying them. And they were right to be concerned because both of them were killed in the raid and one of their wives by the seals. Um, but they were preparing to leave him and, uh, Bin Laden, you know, he was there. There were 27 people on the compound, 16 in Bin Laden's family, 11 in the bodyguard's family. And they were, you know, they were growing their own crops. They were, they had cows, they had chickens, uh, you know, they were growing as much stuff as possible so they didn't need to go out. Because, you know, it's not simply that, uh, you know, if you're buying food for 27 people and there are only 11 people appear to be living in a place, <laughs> Somebody, somebody may notice over time. So they were being pretty careful about everything. And there was no phone service, no internet service. Uh, bin Laden, you know, the, the bin Laden's two oldest wives with PhDs were helping him 
he, he, as you say, was thought that history is passing him by. The Arab Spring was happening. It was a big deal. He thought it was the most important event in the Middle East in centuries, yet his ideas, his, his followers were absent. His family were very kind of concerned that he hadn't made a public statement. He was very, very reliant on his two oldest wives, interestingly, to make, to write these statements. He was kind of bouncing ideas off them. Two of his wives had been with him on the run for a long time. His oldest wife joined him on February 15th, 2011. She'd been living under house arrest in Iran. He was tremendously excited to hear, see her again. She was eight years older than him, uh, very committed to jihad, uh, you know, knew the Quran well, PhD in child psychology, claimed descent from the Prophet Muhammad, which was, of course, a big deal for bin Laden, who might have modeled himself on the Prophet Muhammad, at least in his own mind. And, um, you know, so the life, and, you know, based on what I saw at the compound, they were, you know, not living large. You know, bin Laden um, had always lived, even though he's had a lot of money in the bank until the mid 90s. Uh, before his family cut him off, before the Saudis kind of you know cut off his his money supplies, he always lived a very ascetic life. He he didn't um, you know he, he he partly because of his religious beliefs. Of course, there were no pictures, uh, no music, but also you know he lived he lived like a peasant, a medieval peasant. He seemed to enjoy inflicting this on his family, um, <clears throat> some of whom left because of this. So one of his wives left him in Sudan with three children saying, essentially, I didn't sign up for this life of uh, living like a pauper and this life of jihad. And she left and his oldest son also left him. At the compound, I, I picture, sorry to cut you off, but yeah. I, picture, um, I picture a mixture of linoleum floors and dirt floors. W which is it? Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the, you know, it, it, the color scheme was gray. Um, yeah. you know, there was no, there's like, there's no paint on the wall. There's no, it was all very dingy. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and that, you know, that all fits with bin Laden. He wasn't, he didn't care about those things. He never, even, you know, even when he was you know, first fixing up a house with his wife, you know, when he was 17, you know, he just didn't care about those kinds of worldly things. Um, and yeah, that was one of the sort of attractions for the, his followers that he was living this sort of very ascetic life. And, um, so yeah, the compound was, you know, the beds were sort of very rudimentary. Um, and then I, you know, I went, I walked up the, so on the, there was a staircase and there was a huge yellow door, metal door that was blocking the staircase for, from the ground floor up to the second and third floors. And, uh, that, um, of course, who puts a huge metal gate on their ground floor. So when the seals came in, you know, that was one of the signals to them that they were in the right place. Cause like, you know, you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't put a giant metal gate on the ground floor of your house to prevent access to your second and third floor typically right. uh, <laughs> typically uh, what was it like for you N knowing um in 1997 when you met him you couldn't have known yeah. what was going to happen what was it yeah. like to suddenly be you weren't in his presence because he was already gone and into the ocean but what was it like to sit there and know that this man who had done all these things was living in the place that you were just walking around and touring and yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I expected a sort of frisson, like, you know, visiting uh, Hitler's bunker at the end of World, uh, after the end of World War II. And, it, you know, I just, it didn't happen for me. I was, they, I was with the Pakistani military intelligence, ISI. They, you know, they were like, I couldn't take photographs. There was an armed army captain and uh, my, my guy from the ISI, who's a um, 
you know, relatively senior officer. And, you know, I was just really focused on trying to get as much information visually about how the, how the family were living and, and what happened the night of the raid. Um, and I didn't have a lot of time to sort of think to myself, wow, amazing, or anything like that. I just, I went up into the room where he was killed. I, I you know, the, the, the ceiling was very low for somebody as tall as he. Mm. I saw, uh, it was one of these really sort of very cheap white kind of, I don't know what sort of, sort of cardboard filler type ceilings. And I could see this sort of black spatter of what I consumed was congealed blood where kind of a bullet had entered his head and, and kind of and, and, and bits of his brain had splattered on the ceiling. Um, but the, you know, that, that setup was very rudimentary. He had one of those squat toilets uh, where you, you know, which are very typical in Pakistan where you kind of squat on two footprints and it was, he had uh, some just, just for men hair dye. He was dyeing his hair. Mm. He, uh, what, um, what is the future of terrorism by jihadis in the United States? You know, when 9-11 happened, it was yeah. almost like we were assuming that this was going to keep happening time and again. Um, right now, white supremacists are the ones getting the ink in the United States these days. Yeah. Um, where is the threat right now among the jihadis? We haven't, I don't want to say it this way, but we haven't heard from them in a long time. We haven't. I mean, you know, they, did, they haven't gone away entirely. There was the attack on Pensacola Air Base, killing three, um, three U.S. sailors in December of 2019 by a Saudi military officer who was in touch with al-Qaeda in Yemen. Uh, but yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, this threat has receded. I think it may kind of, come back a little bit, not as a attack from outside the United States, but jihadi groups in Afghanistan are celebrating their great victory. And, you know, I think if you have these ideas in the United States, um, the Taliban victory and, and is something that may influence you, particularly if the Taliban, either the Taliban or people associated with the Taliban or jihadi groups in Afghanistan, Stop calling for attacks in, in the West, which is what ISIS did when they established their caliphate. The, the attacks in the West that are attributable to people inspired by ISIS dropped off the chart. I mean, it, there were a lot of them when ISIS was at its height in 2015. And, and as, ISIS, as ISIS began having battlefield after battlefield defeat, those attacks, those ISIS-inspired attacks began to go down. And now they have almost ceased. They haven't stopped entirely. There was an attack in Manhattan, you may recall, in early on in the, um, in the Halloween 2017. Um, there was an attack by an Uzbek American who was inspired by ISIS. He drove a car into bicyclists and pedestrians in Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. So that was after yeah. the ISIS caliphate had, had gone away. It was at Halloween 2018. That was after the um, ISIS caliphate had, had basically been defeated. But, um, you know, that's the exception that proves the rule. So, yeah, you're right. White, white extremists are, sadly, have always been an issue from a terrorism perspective. I mean, Oklahoma City had killed 168 Americans uh, in 1995. And that threat is uh, increasing. And, that, you know, I, I, I wrote a book that you, we, we were, you were United States of Jihad. And, you know, it was based on the, at that time, I think 330 Americans. Now there are about 500 who've been charged with jihadist crimes since 9-11, ranging from the innocuous to the relatively innocuous to, to the very serious. What's interesting to me, Evan, is that 
those guys swam, and they're almost entirely guys, those guys swam in a relatively small kind of ocean of people who thought they were doing the right thing. There might have been 10,000 Americans who subscribed to these views, or I, I'm, I'm making the number up. But you look at the, the white nationalist movement, uh, you, you look at polling data about QAnon, you look at the polling data about Republicans prepared to do violence to restore Trump to power. You know, you're talking about millions of people who have either crazy conspiratorial ideas or, or ideas that violence in the service of politics are, is, is fine. And that's a big difference from the jihadists and the right-wing extremist movement, which is that um, there are a lot, the, the, the sea, the ocean of sympathizers is much, much larger in this country which I think has implications for, you know, potential scale of violence. Uh, you know, law enforcement is uh, obviously very focused on this issue, so that's a good thing. But, yeah. the, but the pool of sympathizers is, is not insubstantial. Uh, this was a question that was asked a lot after 9-11, um, and I'd be curious to ask it now. What is the best way for all of us to thumb our noses, just be, be, based on what you've known, what you've learned about jihadi terrorism what is the and, and also about their goals for what they wanted to inflict on american society um what is the best way for all of us to thumb our noses at bin laden during our daily lives about how we live our lives and how we treat each other and say we're not going to let you have the world you imagine when you launch well, I, mean, these I, think, attacks. I, I think you just answered it which yeah. is we're not going to let you have the world you imagined and you know part of that is not we're not going to like freak out <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, and there was a lot of that after 9-11. Um, you know, we're not, you know, we understand this is a threat, but it's not as existential. Uh, and that was true, you know, shortly after 9-11. It was, yes, it was a threat, but it wasn't existential. Um, and, you know, we've had, you know, COVID is about to kill 800,000 people. So, you know, there are, um, and, and uh, you know, couple hundred thousand of those deaths might have been avoidable by different policy uh, prescriptions. So there are plenty of other things for people to be concerned about. And I think, you know, to a large degree, terrorism is very, people's concerns about terrorism are unsurprisingly directly related to what is actually happening. So when you go back to the 2015, 2016 time, there was the Orlando attack that killed 49 people. There was the San Bernardino attack that killed 14. Americans were very concerned that they or remember their family might get killed by an ISIS-inspired terrorist. And that threat, when that threat subsided, um, you know, the Americans tuned out the issue. So it's also very driven by kind of what's actually happening, which makes sense because that's how human beings think. I mean, we, if, if there was an attack tomorrow by a terrorist group or right-wing extremist, jihadist terrorists that killed dozens of people, would, this again would become a subject of, of real public interest. But I think for now, it's uh, mostly in the background when it comes to uh, jihadi terrorism, but you know it can change in two, two or three years' time. The, the jihadists have had a major victory in Afghanistan now. A jihadist kind of pro-jihadist uh, regime is now in place. Siraj Khani, who's the Minister of Interior in Afghanistan, is described by the United Nations as part of the leadership council of Al Qaeda. Uh, so that's the first time in history where an Al Qaeda sort of made man is essentially part of, has a senior government job. So it's not like this thing has gone away. 
lastly, why have you devoted your life essentially at this point to telling this story? This is a difficult world, even for me to read about, let alone research and delve into in the way you have. It's a difficult, sad world to live in in some ways. Why is this so important that you keep writing these books and keep on trying to explain what has happened and who is behind what has happened? Well, like you, I'm interested in history. And the, you know, the Cold War ended and then the Trade Center was attacked in February of 93. And I didn't think about it very self-consciously, but that seemed like a big deal. And I, my, luckily I had the right kind of bosses at CNN I, I, you know, who let me go to Afghanistan in 93 as a very immature uh, you know, guy hmm. uh, with, some, uh, with Peter Arnett, who was then the world's most famous war correspondent, and a couple of other people who really knew what they were doing. And we dug into the question of what was this phenomenon coming out of Afghanistan that was because the, the people who bombed the Trade Center the first time around in 90, February of 93, a number of them had trained in Afghanistan and supported the Afghan war effort. And, and then I went back again in, in 97, again with Peter on that, um, to interview bin Laden because we thought he might be kind of the leader of all this. And, you know, I mean, just, I sort of fell into it because of circumstance. Um, and, you know, it's, it is, it, it, he did change history. It turned out to be the right, um, you know, you never really know what stories are going to be important or unimportant. You just pursue things that you think are of interest. And some of them turn out to be meaningless and some of them turn out to be meaningful. And, um, you know, I, I just, to, you know, I first traveled to Pakistan when I was 20. I was a student at university. I made a film with two friends of mine about the Afghan refugees. So I've been interested in Afghanistan my entire professional life and was lucky enough to, you know, meet the right people who, I, I could collaborate with or allowed me or, you know, f you know, in some cases gave me the money from CNN, you know, took a risk to do all this. And, you know, I, I basically, there's a lot of, a lot of luck that led me to this. And um, uh, more than that, I can't really say. Peter Bergen, the author of The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Check out the book and his website, which is peterbergen.com. He's on Twitter at peterbergencnn. I cannot more highly recommend his books as well, Manhunt and United States of Jihad, which were both mentioned here on the show today. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks. <laughs>